I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I'm grateful that you call sinners to yourself and not the righteous. And I'm mindful that this room has only one kind in it. And I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful that you love us. And I pray that you'd help me now as I preach that we might see your glory, especially in our weakness. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I think I've told you before that in the small house that we lived in before we moved to Florida, when our kids were really little, I had a rich garden in the backyard, very black soil. It grew like everything. And um, one summer, I decided I was going to plant a variety of sunflower, and they were called skyscraper sunflowers. And they literally grew to be taller than me. And, and the first um, mobile upload on Facebook, I was new to Facebook in 2007, the first picture, it's still there, I looked it up last night, is a picture of me holding one of these sunflower heads. It's literally twice the size of my own head. And I bring that up because um, what's interesting about sunflowers is um, they actually follow the sun all day. They, they, like, their, their heads are heavy and they droop at night, and then when the sun comes up, they turn and they go like this all day and follow the sun, and then they kind of go back to sleep. It's such an interesting picture of following the sun. In fact, even the hymn, which I didn't realize was going to line up so well, like flowers opening before the sun. I mean, it's like, it's such a good picture of how we were meant to be. Now, the problem is, instead of being like that, we are like this. St. Augustine, the great theologian of the church, used the Latin phrase, homo incurvatus in se, man curved in upon himself. And Martin Luther, the reformer, when he was doing his lectures on the book of Romans, picked up that very expression about being curved in. And it's a phenomenal definition and description of this, the condition of sin, the situation that we find ourselves in, that, that through pride and self-interest and self-preservation, we are curved in on ourselves. And it plays out in all kinds of insidious ways. A person goes to the prayer group, not because they want to pray alone, but because they want to be seen as a prayerful person. There's a self-interest in it. Or a student helps his teacher or her teacher after class, not to be helpful and clean up the classroom, but because they're hoping it will influence the grade. Or um, someone uh, gives money, but they do it because they know there's a donor list and their name's going to be on the wall or on the plaque or whatever, or it printed in the bulletin. Or somebody learns of a dying uncle, and the first thought is the inheritance not the grieving. Now, you could probably keep going and come up with a thousand more examples like that. In fact, if you're honest, you'll probably have an example before this day is out of how you know you should be like this, but you go like that. And, you know, I think the question of what's in it for me is always under the surface there. Or, you know, what about me? What about my part? And with so many other illnesses, early detection helps treatment. The quicker you can recognize that, the quicker you can bring it to the Lord, and he can begin to transform you. Instead of having a curved in person, you become somebody who now is open to God because you find his mercy and grace. Now, in the series that we're in right now, where we're looking at the patriarchs, um, the, the subtitle is God's Persistent Call. Because there is so much about these individuals, these, these patriarchs and the characters of Scripture that would be off-putting to a God who was not a God of grace, but God persistently keeps working with them despite them being curved in on themselves because he's going to transform. He's going to redeem. He's going to bless all the nations through this work that he's doing down through 
ultimately to Jesus, and he's going to change us from people that are curved in on ourselves to people that are open to him and following his lead and responding to his goodness. And so, um, Genesis 25, 19 through 28 is our text today. It's, if you want to look in a pew Bible, it's probably somewhere around page 15 or 19. It's, I mean, go to the beginning and turn a few pages to the right. We're in Genesis 25, 19 through 28. And this is a story about both responding appropriately and responding inappropriately to God. And as is the case with all the patriarchs, they're not outright evil or great. There's a little bit of both in most cases, and it's heading in a direction. And so we're going to look at, um, at this situation, and what we're going to find is that God chose the weak to rely on him. God chose the weak to rely on him. In fact, I'm going to use that phrase to outline my comments this morning. And I, I want to look at God chose, then I want to look at the weak, and I want to look at to rely on him. It'll kind of organize my thoughts around that way. So God chose. We have to recognize God's initiative in everything. Theologians call this prevenient grace. Previously, before anything else happened, God's grace was already at work. I mean, for the very first word in the Bible, in the beginning, God. What well, presumes God was before the beginning, because he was. And in our lives, God is always the initiator. He chose you, you know, before the foundations of the world. He knew what you were going to say before a word is on your tongue. He knows the number of hairs on your head and the number of days of your life. God is ahead of us. He is working ahead of us always. God chose. And we see his initiative. Now, in this, in this situation, if you remember last week, a wife has been selected for Isaac. Her name's Rebecca. She comes all the way from Haran over into the promised land. They, they meet across a field. They get married, and it says, Isaac loved Rebecca. Now, in the text that we pick up today, um, it, it turns out that she, like so many other women in the scriptures, is barren for a while, and then God gives her life. Again, he is showing that he is the Lord and giver of life by doing this, I believe. So what happens here is he's 40 years old. Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebecca, and um, it says just in verse 21, or just before that, it says that she um, was barren. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. That's verse 21. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, how convenient it is when a period, a dot, represents a long period of time. Something's not working right. I pray, God answers. Until you realize he's 40 years old when he gets married, and if you go a little further in verse 26, it says, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 40 years old, 60 years old. That period, that little dot between Isaac prayed and the Lord is 20 years of prayer, of intercession, of her being like, why don't I have a, a, a son? How is this promise going to be co continue through me? What's going on? Isaac's praying, praying, praying. God, God, you know. And remember, remember who Isaac is. This is the kid that was brought up on the mountain by his father, Abram, to be sacrificed. He had that traumatic experience, and God said the Lord will provide. And, you know, God's, God had a promise to Abraham, and Abraham just assumed he would fulfill it through Isaac one way or the other, bringing him back if he was sacrificed, back from the dead, whatever. This is that person. So he knows this promise that God has a promise through the offspring of Abraham, through Isaac, the child of promise, 
to bless all the peoples of the earth. Don't forget that. That's Genesis 12. We, have, we can't forget that. That's, we always have to keep coming back to that. God's plan is to bless all the peoples, all the nations, all the families of the earth through his chosen offspring, who we will learn later is Jesus. So right away, we see the Lord's timing. He's going to wait 20 years. This is going to show that he is the one who provides. He's the one who gives life. It's also really going to be a test of Isaac's faith. Is he going to keep praying for 20 years? Does he believe that God is good on his promise? He made Abraham wait a long time. Now he's making Isaac wait a long time. And Isaac's response is persistent prayer. Good. This is a good response to God. We give him a thumbs up for that one. Then the Lord not only answers and gives one son, but gives two. Twins are in her womb. Twins. But it's an unusual pregnancy. There's like a boxing match going on inside her belly. And this isn't, you know, rambunctious kids that are kicking a little bit. She realizes there's an actual conflict happening, and she can feel it in her person. It's like the personality of the kid starts at conception, not at birth. In fact, we see this with, uh, in the New Testament with John the Baptist. When he's in Elizabeth's womb, and she goes to visit Mary, who has the Son of God in her womb, it says he leapt with joy. So we see the personality of the people playing out even before they come out and are born. And she's concerned. There's a battle going on inside my belly. What does she do? She inquires of the Lord. She prays about this, and the Lord responds. Again, thumbs up, Rebecca, good job, praying, take it to the Lord. Lord, give me understanding what's going on in this situation in my life. And the Lord responds and gives her an oracle. It's, it's um, in the text, it's moved over like Hebrew poetry. So it's two lines and two lines. That, that The way that they do Hebrew poetry is they say something and then expand it and then say something else and then expand it in some way. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be divided. So you've got a conflict going on because there are two boys that are going to be the heads of two nations, but they're going to be divided. That's how the first line expands. And the second one is, one shall be stronger than the other. One people will be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is, this is even before they're born. So the Lord gives this oracle, and while they ref- respond in prayer well the first two times, then it goes south fast. And all four people involved here, Jacob, Esau, Isaac, and Rebekah, do not respond like this. They respond like this. So let's look at what happens. The birthday comes, and out comes the first, Esau. He's like a little hairy man. He's covered in red fur. He's just like, comes out, like, like I don't know if he had a beard or what, but he was like hairy. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. And then right behind him comes his brother grabbing onto his heel. And they call him Jacob, which means grabs onto the heel. I don't think the parents meant to put a negative thing on on him, but later that grabbing onto the heel could also imply tripping somebody up or deceiving. And Jacob does become a deceiver or is manifest to be that kind of a person. We'll see more in Jacob if you read through more of Genesis. And so one is named Esau because he's hairy and he's the first one. He's very masculine. And the other one is not as much so. Jacob comes out, but he's um, sharp-witted and he gets his way by deceiving. Now they fast forward to the teenage years. And, and right away in verse 27 it says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. This is Mr. Cabela's. This is REI guy. This is, 
This is a guy with all the gear, the bows and arrows. He goes out and he kills stuff and brings it home. You know, that's, that's this guy. And, and then, um, well, Jacob was a quiet man. And later we learn that he's very smooth. He didn't have all this hair. He wasn't as, as just buff. And he, and he preferred to dwell in the tents. He hung back with his mother in the tents and he cooked. And his brother's out hunting and killing stuff. Totally different personalities here. And, um, and right away, um, we see the weakness. God chose the weak. The weakness here is really bad parenting. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, the text here is not meant to be a guide on parenting, and I don't have to tell you this, but if your kids know that one's a favorite, that's not good. It leads to bad things. And let me tell you what actually happens. And, and this doesn't go away quickly. This will dog you up into your adult years, way into your adult years. That where one child is set up as favored over the other, it feeds into sibling rivalry. Now there's competition where there could have been friendship. And even after they're raised and gone, there is oftentimes a lingering drive for approval. And if it's not from mom or dad, it'll be from my boss, it'll be from my spouse, it'll be from someone else. Right here, damage is done. They are not responding well. I mean, Rebecca could have said, wow, God, you've answered our prayers, and not only did you give me one son, you've given me two. And I praise you that they are diverse and different, and I pray that they would become friends. Nope, there's no reaction like that. I mean, the scriptures are pretty terse here, and just simply says, she loved Jacob, and Isaac loved Esau. And it's painful because it says he loved Esau because he liked to eat the game that he shot. It's not even for Esau's own sake. It's like for his own stomach, which we'll see play out in how Esau responds. I mean, the good and the bad of parents is passed down to their children. And so um, what happens? Well, they jump to a story in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now, I wish the Hebrew, I wish we could translate this literally. There's a word in Hebrew that only occurs once in the entire Bible, and, um, and it's, it's not the word eat, like it's translated here. It's like cram down. Like, I want to binge cram down on that food. And, and he doesn't say on that red stew. He says on that red red. So literally, it's, hey, Jacob, I am exhausted. I'm so hungry. I've been out hunting. Let me cram down some of that red red. That literally is what he says, which makes sense for the parentheses then next. Then it says, therefore his name was called Edom. The word Edom is the, is the word red in Hebrew. Hey, Jacob, let me cram down some of that Edom Edom. It was so weird. It became a kind of like a family joke, and they no longer called him Esau. They just called him Edom. Hey, red. And it didn't didn't help that his hair was red too. So he's a hairy red man, and he said, let me eat some of that red red, and so they just called him red from that point forward. Which, by the way, he's the father of the Edomites who dwell in southeast of, the, if, you, if you know your map of, the, of Palestine, where the Dead Sea is, go south and east out into the desert. That's in the kind of the, the mountainous kind of dusty, deserty hill country. That's where the Edomites lived. And there's centuries of conflict between them and the Israelites, the offspring of Jacob, and that will play out in the rest of the scriptures. But so right here, he's only worried about filling his belly. 
And Jacob the deceiver finds an opportunity. Sure, I'll let you eat some of my red stew. Sell me your birthright right now. And he, and you know, flippantly, what good is my birthright? I'm going to die right now. I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And, and he says, swear to me. And Esau swears to him, and he serves him the bread and the lentil stew. And the scripture says, um, kind of flippantly, it just says, um, then Jacob gave Esau the bread and the lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Without another thought, he is in the moment, he is short-sighted, he is only caring for his bodily needs in that moment. He does not care about long-term ramifications of this. And by the way, this is not any way legally binding. It's kind of interesting that this happens. But there's a spiritual import to it. Do you know somebody, actually a bunch of people have tried to do this, but one time it got through, someone tried to sell his soul on eBay, listed it, and gave a description of it, and, and it got through, and it bid from, like it started out with a dollar, but it bid up to $400. The sale completed before eBay caught it, and they stopped it because they said it's against our policies, and then they made a policy to say that that was against it. And so I don't think the transaction ever happened. But this was an atheist who thought, this is foolishness. I don't even have a soul. It's kind of a joke, right? But it's not a joke. It's actually real. And there's a spiritual implication to it that will only be figured out in the future. And I think the same thing is happening right here, that, that he is totally ignoring something that's very important and spiritual because he only cares about eating. He's just caught up with carnal desire. In fact, in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews will call him unholy because of this and says some pretty strong words about, as a caution to us. He says, um, uh, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." He was living in the moment with the wrong perspective, curved in on himself, and it's awful. Now, we're not going to look at the story of the deception, so I'm going to point to that a little bit. Later, when it's time for Isaac to give this blessing and this birthright, the inheritance to the firstborn, Rebecca steps in and comes up with a scheme to deceive the elder, now very elderly Isaac and pretend that Jacob is Esau. You guys probably know the story and ends up getting, um, getting the birthright and the blessing. He deceives him twice. And, um, and Jacob has all along planned to favor the firstborn, despite the oracle of God saying that the actual covenant person is going to be the second. It's going to be Jacob. I'm choosing the weaker one so that you'll re rely on my grace. But Isaac is not there. So God chooses the weak, we see the weakness there, to rely on him. I like the prayer in the morning prayer service on page 25 of the Book of Common Prayer. It recognizes that we thank God for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, of the, but above all the immeasurable love of Jesus. Creation and preservation. We are recognizing that all of us are alive right now only because moment by moment God is holding us in his hand. We are all weak, actually. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, the Apostle Paul says that God chose what is weak in this world to, re to reveal his strength and to actually, um, it says, let me read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 28. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he's talking about the cross, ultimately. The cross was a symbol of shame, and God chose this as the way that, that his son is going to redeem the entire world, how he's going to defeat sin and Satan. He's going to take this instrument of torture and turn it into an instrument of glory. He's going to choose something foolish and use it to shame the, the wise of the world. God chose the weak. And um, it's interesting that people in the world look at people of faith as though you're weak. And I'm quick to say, you're right, I am. And you're weak too, you just don't know it. You're still curved in on yourself. I've been playing sports with people now um, for recreation and health, and it's putting me into an orbit of non-church people, which by the way, I, I love church people, but it's interesting to be outside of the community for a bit. And now I'm starting to run into these conversations where I can't avoid telling them what I do. I try to. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in HR. I'm a, you know, I'm a motivational speaker. I try, I try to find ways, but it comes out. And then people pity me. They pity me for being a Christian. And they seem to think that being free from religion is ultimate freedom. And but what it is, is it's curved in on itself, and they don't realize it. And I'm like, ugh. Oh, you're weak too. I'm just willing to acknowledge it and cry out to the one who can make me strong. I wish you would join me in that. God chose the weak to rely on him. So who is weak? Everyone. And the gospel message today shows the righteous, the, the would-be righteous, offended that Jesus had meals with sinners and tax collectors and Levi, the tax collector, the chief tax collector, has them to his house. How is it that you can eat with that sinner, Jesus? Yeah, well, he's the friend of sinners, and he says... It's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, there are no ultimate righteous. There are only sinners, and it's when we recognize that we're weak, we find God's strength available. The minute we go, yeah, I am curved in on myself, that, that inclination is always there, I find God's grace. It's incredible. So if you can hear God calling you this morning, and you acknowledge that is true of you, that you're weak and curved in on yourself, I repent. Repent means to turn, like to turn, change. You're like this, turn. Turn up to him and invite him to come and lead you. And what you find is a God full of grace and love for you. And he'll actually begin to change your heart and help you with that problem when you bring it to him. God chose the weak to rely on him. And if you already know him, I want to encourage you to be careful of overstepping the kingdom work in this world. You know, sometimes we want to take the instruments of the world and force the kingdom of God onto people that are not ready for it. And we'll use politics and influence and power and money and try to Christianize a situation when God hasn't called us to do it like that. And that's what Rebecca and Jacob tried to do with this blessing thing. It's interesting, if they hadn't messed with it at all, how would God have played it out? Because in the next generation with Joseph, we'll get there, Joseph is the youngest, and he's sold into slavery, and there's no deceivery to get him the blessing, but he had a vision of his brothers bowing down to him as well. How did it work out? Well, God sent him to Egypt to become Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he saves the entire world of that known day, and is raised up, and the, the brothers are bowing down to him. God entirely does it through weakness. So we're tempted to try to force the kingdom in our situations, and I think it's helpful to, to pay attention to the, the final prayer today before we go out. Send us out to do the work you've given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses, not to bring some Christian version of society and inflict it on everyone else. Let's be faithful witnesses of our Lord. 
A God who chooses the weak to rely on him. And the boasting will be, and God did this, I did not. That's the call here, and we're seeing a glimpse of this. Don't, go, don't grow weary of it taking a while. Lift your drooping hand, says Hebrews 12. Rely on God by faith. God chose the weak to rely on him, and he still does today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful that you are so strong that we don't have to defend you. We don't have to force anything. We just have to come to you and open up our hearts, open up our hands to receive the gift you have for us. Lord, when we look up and see your, your son, it is warming, it is life-giving. I thank you for loving us, Lord. Give us the courage to trust you. There are situations in our life right now, family situations with generations, there are work situations, where we so long for your kingdom to come, and it's taking a long time. So we cry out, and we ask for your help. And I pray for, for this congregation to have the persistence of prayer that Isaac had, that we would keep going to you because we know that you love us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.